This is an ABC podcast. Hi there and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and I hope you're coping okay at home and that you're safe and sound. Now, Australia has had 30 Prime Ministers since our independence as a nation-state in 1901. 30. Uh, What do you think they all have in common? Uh, Well, 29 of them, because Scott Morrison, of course, is still in power, they share this. A marked reluctance to relinquish power. And not just the Canberra's are widely regarded as the political coup capital of the world. How often have we heard that? Other factors are at play, and a new book seeks to tell us more about the manner of their departure. Stay with us for my chat with Norman Abjohnson, and I'll have a very interesting quiz question for Norman and you, the listener. Hope you can tune in for that. But first to the Philippines, where the wildly popular but controversial President Rodrigo Duterte, he's come up with the world's most severe penalty for breaking a coronavirus lockdown. The main island of Luzon has been in lockdown since mid-March, with no one allowed outside without a mask. And Duterte has issued orders for the military and national police to shoot dead anyone caught violating restrictions or causing trouble. Shoot dead. Crikey. Has he finally gone too far? Or is this just more of the populist hardliner that has made him so popular? Well, joining us now from New York is Sheila Coronel. She's a veteran Filipino journalist and professor of investigative journalism at the Columbia Journalism School. She's also author of a very important article on Duterte in a recent issue of Foreign Affairs magazine in New York. Sheila, welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you. Now, let's start with Duterte's response to coronavirus and this shoot-to-kill order. Uh, is this accepted by the Filipino voters as a reasonable government response? I think that Filipinos have been used to Duterte's very violent language and rhetoric. They don't know how, quite how to calibrate what is real and what is not. And the power of Duterte's language is precisely this ambiguity. He is able to exercise power by showing people that he is capable of anything. Uh, So people are scared. They follow. The shoot-to-kill order may or may not be literal. There have not been many people killed. I think there's just one person who was shot at for violating the quarantine, but certainly 20,000 people have been arrested in since the quarantine began in, in mid-March. So Philipp, many, few Filipinos will disagree that we need discipline in order to make this quarantine effective. And Duterte is the one in charge. They may, they may object to the harshness of it, but they also know that some sort of disciplined isolation and quarantine at this difficult time is necessary. Okay, let's be clear. His approval ratings might be getting close to 90%, which is just extraordinary, but his popularity rests on his promise to protect the people and keep them safe. So do you see this virus as a test of his legitimacy more so than it is in, in, say, Western countries? 
I think so. I think many Filipinos accepted the very violent war on drugs because they felt that previous governments have not been able to contain the drug trade. In this, this, the problem with the coronavirus and the pandemic is that it is not a purely law enforcement issue. I mean, neither was the drug trade, but let's not get into that. It is also the issue of how prepared the government has been to deal with health and social and economic repercussions of this. And so far, what we've seen is that the government has been woefully unprepared. Uh, millions of Filipinos have no means of livelihood. Local governments and the national government have not been able to mobilize the food and other aid that they need. I don't know how poor communities are going to last. So far, there's been a patchwork, very valiant efforts by companies, by communities, by some local governments to bring aid to those who need them most. But certainly there's not enough. And this will have an impact on on Duterte's uh, sort of rhetoric that he is a strong leader, but he also cares for people. Okay, what about the capital Manila? It's in lockdown, but it's a city famous for its slums. Uh, What impact is the lockdown having in the slums? The like everywhere else in the world, where you have very concentrated numbers of poor people, very large numbers of poor people in very concentrated locations where social distancing is impossible. These slum communities are not only vulnerable to the contagion, but most of these people are not wage earners. They earn money through the informal underground economy and their means of livelihood, transport, um, street vending, you know, con- construction have have been completely halted. So these people are living hand to mouth. They, they, you know, even in the best of times, the the these people, you know, earn barely enough to keep body and soul together. And these are not the best of times. Sheila Coronel, she's from Columbia Journalism School, and she's one of the world's leading experts on the Philippines. And we've been talking about President Duterte and how he's responded to the coronavirus crisis. Sheila, talking about his shoot to kill order, in your recent foreign affairs article, which I enjoyed very much, you tell the story of Duterte's final year in law school in Manila. He shot a classmate who made fun of his thick accent. (laughs) Tell us more. Yes, yeah, so Duterte is um, comes from the provincial elite, and so has he. He speaks with this very thick provincial accent. So when he went to school in Manila, his classmates were making fun of him, and apparently at one point he just got tired of it and shot one classmate. You know, not fatally, but just <laughs> just because. Yeah, but in you know there was a big debate in the law school where he studied, and they decided. They're going to make him graduate, but he's not going to march in his graduation. And that's how <laughs> Duterte ended up going, taking the bar. And the bloke he life. shot, he recovered okay, I take it. Yes. I mean, Duterte intended to teach him a lesson, and I believe mm. he learned that lesson. Okay. Well, his, his term as president ends, I think it's 2022, so two years' time. And under the Constitution, he's not allowed to seek re-election. He must be looking to find a successor who can uphold his legacy and protect him for future criminal charges. What about his daughter? Well, his daughter is sort of um, a mirror image of him, a female Duterte, female (laughs) younger (laughs) Duterte. She's very tough, but she's her own person too. 
you know, she's not just her father's lackey. She's uh, independent-minded, but she's sort of, she's mayor of Davao now, the same position that Duterte, her father, held for more than 20 years. And she rules Davao pretty much like a local boss, like her father did. Yeah, I want to think of... Um populist movements and their legacies. I think of India's Narendra Modi, uh, Hungary's Viktor Orban. We've done plenty of programs on both of those leaders on Between the Lines over the years, Sheila. Seems to me that Duterte has shown far little interest in um, in building a party or at least a political movement that will outlast him. Um, why do you think he's, he's uh, bereft of a broader movement that will carry on his legacy like Orban and, say, Modi? Well, Duterte relies a great deal on his personal charisma. That's been the way he became, you know, he went, came to power in Davao, and that's the way he's ruled as president. And um, I don't think he has, I, he does not have the organizational or governance skills to be able to form a party and wield that party. He does, he, he does not really have a coherent ideology. I mean, he's anti-China, he's anti-American, but all of that stems from being who he is. His main appeal is his authenticity. And the reality is that there are no strong political parties before Duterte came into power. And so it's not that he's unique in that sense, but he's, unlike previous presidents, who have at least attempted to you know, form a political party that will outlive them, Duterte so far has not succeeded very much in doing so. Okay, let's turn to the US relationship. Duterte has repeatedly questioned Washington's resolve to stand by the Philippines if it were attacked by China. He's been courting closer ties with Beijing. This is despite, of course, Chinese territorial claims over Philippine waters. And of course, China's intimidation of the Philippines fishermen. They lost, the Chinese lost the case to the Philippines at the Hague four years ago. February this year, Duterte scrapped the US visiting forces agreement. What's going on here, given that the US alliance is so popular with the people of the Philippines? Duterte wants to carve an independent foreign policy, independent of the US. For for the longest time, Philippine po- foreign policy has basically been tied to to the US. But Duterte... Well, I think he generally believes that, one, the U.S. is a waning power and that he should hitch his wagon to the rising star in Asia, and mm. that's China. Two, I think he he really sees the U.S. as being, and rightly so, you know, the U.S. is hypocritical as a world power. It preaches democracy and human rights when in reality, you know, it's, it's a, it does other things. In it. So Duterte is very sensitive to U.S. criticism on his authoritarian tendencies and on his human rights record. And so he'd like to have to be independent of U.S. in, in that sense and be less dependent on U.S. Tr- US trade, U.S. foreign aid and the blessings of U.S. officials as previous Philippine presidents have been. So it's a very pragmatic... Yeah, but it's very interesting because he remains popular. But as I said before, uh, the Filipino people still value the relationship. I think I've got some polls here saying that 80% um, are highly sceptical of China and they support, uh, they strongly support America. So how does Duterte get away with that? He gets away with it by, by dint of his personal charisma. Right. China, yeah. But surely yeah. any future Filipino leader will want a U.S. alliance to balance Chinese influence because you've got the Vietnamese, an old Cold War foe of the Americans, that are clamouring for U.S. security guarantees in the face of a rising China. Surely his successor will be more worried about China's influence in the region. 
I think his successor would be wary about Chinese influence, but also will not, you know, Philippine, since China became really the dominant, well, an emerging dominant power in the region, a lot of leaders in Southeast Asia have tried to strike a balance, you know, trying to balance between both U.S. and Chinese interests. And the whole notion of ASEAN rests on its ability to play one power against the other. And so the next president will likely not be as friendly towards China, but will also try and keep that balance. The next president cannot afford to antagonize China because China is a major source of public works uh, financing, major source of tourists. Mm. China has, has military clout. So China, you the next no Southeast Asian leader can afford to ignore China. It's interesting because we're having this debate now in Australia and this debate will intensify in the wake of the coronavirus crisis in a few months' time about the nature of the relationship between countries in the region and China. And a consensus is starting to emerge in Canberra that will be more critical and sceptical of China in the wake of this crisis. I think so. I think Filipinos will be more sceptical, partly because the origins of the virus were really from Wuhan. The first cases Mm. of corona from the Philippines were from Wuhan, and also because of Chinese incursions in Philippine waters. So there's a great deal of, there's also a great deal of anti-Chinese feeling among Filipinos, a great deal of sort of xenophobic uh, fears. But but yes, so anti-Chinese feeling is very popular right now, uh, but Duterte is even more popular as of now. Yeah. Finally, uh, the Philippines is a majority Catholic country and the church has been very critical of Duterte's drug war, which has seen over, what, 12,000 people killed by the national police. Do you think the church will prove to be a source of opposition to Duterte in the next two years or, or have, they effect- have they been effectively silenced by, by Duterte? Sheila? Well, the church as an institution is, is many, is, speaks of many voices. But the truth is that one of the main pillars of the opposition to Duterte's human rights abuses, especially to the drug war, have been individual bishops and priests. The church remains a very strong voice. The church right now, with with a pandemic, is also a very strong voice speaking out for the poor and how the poor are suffering. The church is is has become, you know, the basic Christian communities have become the bulwark of some of the aid distribution. So I think this pandemic is making them stronger. Plus, you know, the existential issues raised by COVID-19 makes people go back to the church, back to faith. This is Holy Week. This is Easter week in the Philippines. And and I think the church is gaining a lot of ground that it lost in earlier presidencies because of its opposition to birth control, divorce, reproductive rights for women, etc. Sheila, it's been lovely talking to you. Thanks so much for being on ABC Radio. You're welcome. Sheila Coronel, she's Professor of Investigative Journalism at the Columbia Journalism School, and you can read her excellent article on Duterte in Foreign Affairs magazine. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, let's change the subject from coronavirus and the Philippines to back here at home. Now, for those of you who want to understand our nation's political history, why do you think we've changed prime ministers so often? Has the job of PM become so different in recent times? If you think about it, during the past dozen years, since 2008, there have been six prime ministers, Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison. During the previous dozen years, from early 1996 to late 2007, there was one prime minister, John Howard. 
So why has the job of PM become so insecure? Norman Abjorinson is one of our nation's leading political historians, and he's told a story of how our 29 prime ministers lost power. The book is called The Manner of Their Going, and it's published by Australian Scholarly Publishing. Norman, welcome to RN. Good to be here. Thank you, Tom. Now, I was struck by your debt of gratitude to Robert Menzies uh, in your forward, um, PM from 39 to 41, then 49 to 66. Tell us about your meeting with Menzies in 65. I was a very young cadet journalist on a suburban newspaper in Melbourne. Um, Menzies had come out to open something in the electorate. I can't remember what it was, but the... Uh, local member John Jess was quite keen on getting photographed with Menzies for the local paper. So he wanted me to point the uh, photographer in his direction. So the quid pro quo was he introduced me to the, the Prime Minister. And um, I, I, I said to him at the time, I said, look, I saw you in action a couple of years ago. My parents took me to a town hall meeting when I was 16 during the 1963 election. I remember it well. So we exchanged pleasantries and I thought, well, that was it anyway. Um, Next day, John Jess rang me up in the office and he said, look, the PM would like to continue his chat. Are you, are you available to meet him? And I said, well, of course I am. So he gave me a phone number to, uh, to ring. I subsequently made an appointment with uh, the Prime Minister's uh, staff, went into the Commonwealth Parliamentary offices in Melbourne late one Friday afternoon. And I, I think it was a lot of 10 or 15 minutes, but it was a, a very congenial chat and the I'd already started to develop an interest in political history. So one of the things I was keen on asking the Prime Minister was, and bear in mind this was November or December 1965, just before he stepped down. So I said, what was the difference between your first Prime Ministership that ended in 1941 and where we are now? And he just went across the table and said, my boy, he said, times change, men don't. Now, point because it was not what he wrote in his memoirs. He, uh, in afternoon light, there was a a slight near culpa about his first term. He said he was uh, not so, um, didn't have the common touch, saw things in black and white, didn't listen to other people's viewpoints. So he suggested in that he he had mellowed, but uh, that was quite contrary to what he told me at the time. And uh, I can't remember what else we talked about in that 15 minutes, but I did see him about eight or nine years later mm. during the mid-1970s. And um, he uh, was very disinclined to talk about politics. He would much prefer to talk about test cricket or Australian football. And it seemed to me at that stage, this was 74, 75, um, the only politician he seemed to have or political figure he seemed to have any time for was Bob Santa Maria. So... Uh, mm. Uh, it was a, an, an interesting conversation. It bookends of having first met him and meet, meeting yes, him. Yes, but your point's about the way that these leaders leave, and he's one of the few prime ministers who's actually, or, or leaders generally, I mean, we've had a few state premiers who leave uh, power at a time of their choosing, but he departed at a time of his choosing and defied Enoch Powell's doctrine that all political careers end in failure. Just as an aside, um, can you name at the top of your head the one member of federal parliament who actually met Robert Menzies? You won't know it. I'll tell you now. Oh, actually, I'll tell you at the end of the uh, the show because it's fascinating and our listeners can think about that. The one member of parliament, whether they're a parliamentarian or a senator, who actually met Robert Menzies in their life. Now, we're talking about the churning of political leadership in Australia during the past decade. It looks exceptional, but is it really a new development in the country? Um, Norm? Well, uh, 
there's always been a bit of a turn at the top. It's probably been more pronounced and more publicised in recent years. And I think there are fairly complex explanations for that. So I think certainly the, the nature of authority has changed. And certainly the parties themselves have changed. They've become uh, much more electoral machines. Uh, David Kemp, the political scientist and later a, a minister in the Howard government, wrote many years ago that the, uh, the Liberal Party had a very instrumental view of, 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 of leadership. That is, if you were, weren't going to win the next election, you were in trouble. The Labor Party, by contrast, had a very institutionalised view of the leadership. Uh, I think those two positions have merged somewhat. I think uh, they've become very similar. And I think you're, you're virtually on notice uh, from day one. And the, sort of the, the advent of political polling now, which has just permeated the political landscape, I think uh, on a week-to-week basis, it's not a long-term lease anymore. Yes, and, but as uh, I was reading your book, Norman, I mean, I was thinking to myself, uh, you know, you think about it, from 1901, when we became an independent state, right through to the outset, the outbreak of World War One in 1914, um, the country had 10 prime ministers. I mean, that's extraordinary. From 1966 to 1972, so from that period after Menzies resigned, which we've just been talking about, to 1972 when Whitlam came to power, this was at the height of the Vietnam War, we had six prime ministers. So doesn't all that indicate that long tenures like Menzies, they're an aberration and instability is the norm in Australian politics? Well, to some extent, I mean, I, I think if we, if, if we look back on the first decade, of the Commonwealth before the, um, the current two-party system was established. We, uh, we saw Prime Ministers come and go uh, defeated on the floor of the House, and I think that was a, an instability with its own particular explanation. And, uh, I mean, those of us who grew up in the 1950s, like myself, Bob Menzies seemed to have been Prime Minister forever. He seemed to be a permanent fixture on the landscape, and um, he, he was just what the prime ministership was all about. And to, to a lesser extent, so too with the more recent prime ministership of John Howard. So you, you're right in that point that the, the, that longevity is something of an aberration. But, uh, I mean, the, the, they, were, they were quite remarkable prime ministerships, each of them. Indeed. My guest is Norman Abjoranson. He's author of The Manning of the, the Manner of Their Going. That's the title of the book, The Manner of Their Going. It's about prime ministers and the way they leave power. Uh, I liked uh, reading about James Scullin, uh, Prime Minister from 1929, who's elected around the time of the Wall Street crash until 1931. These were tumultuous times. And he was asked later, uh, later in later years, whether he'd uh, write his memoirs, uh, to which he replied, quote, it nearly killed me to live through it. It would kill me to write about it. <laughs> I love that line. Now, so more often than not, the voters kick Prime Ministers out of office. Um, can you can you name them at the top of your head, uh, Norman? Well, um, yes, uh, Alfred Deakin in his second term, he served three terms. Andrew Fisher, who also served three terms, was defeated at the at the polls in the second term. Joseph Cook, Stanley mm-hmm. Melbourne Bruce, Jim Scullin, Ben Chifley, Bill McMahon, Malcolm Fraser, Paul Keating, John Howard, Kevin Rudd. Indeed. Now, three prime ministers died in office. Who were they? Uh, Joseph Lyons in 39, uh, John Curtin in 1945, and uh, the unfortunate Harold Holt well, at the how, end of exactly. How could we forget about Holt drowning in late 67? Five were defeated on the floor. Remind us. Uh, George Reid uh, in, in the first decade of the, uh, of, of the Commonwealth. Uh, Chris Watson, the first Labor Prime Minister in 1904. 
Alfred Deacon uh, mm. twice suffered that fate. Mm -hmm. Andrew Fisher in his first term, and uh, the most recent was Arthur Patton in uh, 1941. And of course, some prime ministers were knifed by their own side. Tell us them. Uh, here's where we get into treachery. Here's where we get into the, into the real drama. <laughs> the real, the real, <laughs> the bloodlust of politics. Who are they? Billy Hughes, who left the Labor Party and uh, joined the the Nationalists. Um, he was removed from office because the country party wouldn't form a coalition with him in, as leader. Um, Bob Menzies, in his first incarnation in 1941. Um, Jolly John Gorton, in, uh, in 1971. Mm -hmm. Bob Hawke, the most successful Labor Prime Minister of all time in, in, in 1990, um, 1991. Kevin Rudd, his first Prime Ministership. Uh, his successor, Julia Gillard, and more recently, Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull. It's so there was, a, there was a long list of victims there. <laughs> and they've really rapidly developed in recent times. Of course, the one Prime Minister we haven't mentioned here, of course, is Gough Whitlam. He was dismissed by the Governor-General. And you raise the possible American role in the dismissal in 19... 75. Now, in his review of your book in The Australian, the former Labor Senator Stephen Loosley, he says, quote, past guest on this program, Loosley says, quote, neither the CIA nor any other agency likely played a primary or sinister hand in toppling the struggling Whitlam government. Stephen Loosley further notes, quote, the Australian establishment from Kerr through Fraser to Chief Justice Sir Garfield Barwick, backed overwhelmingly by the Australian media, was more than equal to destroying the Labor administration. <laughs> Norman Abjoranson. Well, look, the, uh, the smoking gun's never been found. I mean, uh, there's been a, a conspiracy theory, if you like, that the the Americans had some hand in it. But what is yet to be explained is the uh, the visit to Australia briefly in 1977 after Jimmy Carter took over the, from the, the Ford administration. And uh, Warren Christopher later, who became Secretary of State, asked for a meeting with Gough Whitlam. And I, I think they met at the Sydney airport. So Whitlam went out there, uh, then again leader of the opposition with his, um, his secretary, Richard Butler, and Warren Christopher said, uh, made a number of points about the Democrats being a fraternal party with the Labor Party in Australia and so forth. Then made the statement, according to Butler, that we just wanted to give you an assurance that we will never again interfere in Australian domestic politics. And it was a very brief meeting. And according to, to Butler's account, which he uh, gave in an interview with Max Such after Whitlam's death, Whitlam got into the car and said to him, what was that all about, comrade? And uh, according to Butler, Whitlam was still shell-shocked by the dismissal. And uh, Butler said they were apologising for their interference. Whitlam didn't say anything. I mean, that, that's the closest we've ever got to it. But it's never been explained why Warren Christopher would make those remarks. So all I'm doing is um, canvassing the landscape here. I'm not making any insinuations. But as I said, we've, we've never found a smoking gun. And look, having said that... Um, the evidence there is entirely circumstantial, and we shouldn't forget Labor's own contribution. I mean, the loans affair was badly handled, yeah. the ministerial resignations, and... Well, that, that I have to cut you short because we are running out of time, and that is another episode altogether. We'll get you back on. But listen, getting back to the question I raised before, the quiz question of the day on Between the Lines, name the one member of the Australian Parliament who met Robert Menzies. Who is it? 
the current uh, Australian Parliament, I, I, I couldn't tell you. Believe it or not, it's Ken White, the Indigenous Affairs Minister. Uh, he met Robert Menzies the year before you met him in 1964. Fascinating. Norman, it's great to have you on the program again. Okay, many thanks, Tom. That's Norman Abjoranson. He's author of The Manner of Their Going. Uh, he paraphrases Tolstoy at the end. He says, quote, All prime ministers in office are similar, but each leaves office in his or her own peculiar way. Well, that's it for another week of Between the Lines. It's always great to have your company. Now, remember, you can download past episodes of the show on Between the Lines website, or you can get them wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, we've been doing this since 2014. It'd be great to have your company again next week. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week. to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.